This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Fiji's Commissioner of Corrections and Police have been suspended and replaced. We'll find out why some women's and human rights activists are celebrating the decisions. And in the Australian state of Victoria, Pacific seasonal workers are getting into gear with the aid of a new driving program to help them get their licence. The road rules aren't the same as where they've come from, so they'll be surprised that some of the rules are a lot different here than they're used to back in their home country. And it's been a wild weekend of sports with the Rugby Sevens World Series and the Australian Open wrapping up. And it's also been an exciting time for Pacific women tennis fans who are participating in the first leadership training with Tennis Australia. It's given me the confidence to now take this back to the community and then to help empower the women in my community and in our sport. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, for the past decade, Fiji's media have operated under under tight restrictions and scrutiny with strict rules governing how stories can be reported. But a change in government has also been reflected by a change in attitude toward the media. As the ABC's Lile Mavono in Suva reports, there's hope for brighter days ahead for the media industry, both in Fiji and across the region. There are specific incidents Netani Rika remembers vividly, such as when unknown men smashed his car with golf clubs, or the night Molotov cocktails landed in his living room, and the day he was locked in a cell at the military camp. The award-winning veteran journalist was manager news and current affairs at Fiji Television in December of 2006 when military commander Frank Bainamarama staged a coup. We were monitoring the situation from the Fiji TV newsroom. Well, once the takeover happened, there was a knock at the door and uh, we had some military, some soldiers present themselves. We were told that they were there for our protection. They said, no, we are here to be in the newsroom and we want to see uh, what goes to air. And we also have a list here of people who you cannot speak to. So we said that we would not be able to comply with uh, the, their requirements and uh, as such we posted uh, what is called in television a still a notice which said uh, Fiji TV news will not be broadcast tonight uh, due to military censorship and we will only return once you are able to broadcast the news in a manner which is free and fair. Although he reported the incidents of violence to the Fiji police force, it too was led by military officers. And he says detectives were always frank with him that his complaint would not go far. The journalist's house was smashed, and twice the unknown men, one of whom he would later identify as being a member of the military, tried to burn his home once with him in it. Well, at the Fiji Times, that's when they actually physically smashed my vehicle. There was a series of letters to the editor, which I suppose you could say were anti-government. Shortly after lunch, the, the Honorable Leader of the Opposition, now, called. He, he saw it me in the Fijian, in Tokyo language. So a little after that, say about uh, 40 minutes later, was the first time uh, I saw a vehicle come into 
into our street. The next time they came, they actually came over the fence, broke uh, luva, wooden luva, and threw one old petrol bomb inside the house. I got up, I slipped on a wet surface, it wasn't until I came back later that I could smell uh, fuel. The, the, the components of a Molotov cocktail. While the threats remain, each time in response to stories perceived to be anti-government, there was pressure applied down the line towards reporters and up the leadership chain to threaten the employment rights of the then expatriate publishers of News Limited owned the Fiji Times. Eventually, Netani Rika and his deputy Sophie Foster, who is now an Australian national, would lose their jobs when the Bainamarama government passed the Media Act forbidding foreign ownership of Fijian media organizations. I don't think there's any media organization in this country which would take me on. Uh, the, the government pressured the Fiji Times, took away its advertising, yeah, did all sorts of things in, a, in order to bring it into line with its propaganda. Fiji, everything in Fiji is okay. There's no more corruption, etc., etc. But uh, they couldn't do it. And so they changed, well, the media laws were changed so that you could not have more than 5% um, overseas ownership. Fiji uh, Times was fully owned by News Limited at the time. News Limited was removed. The company was sold to Motibai Group. Motibai Group was told, if you get rid of this guy and a few other people, uh, we will give you back your uh, the advertising that we had taken from you. Samantha Magic was news director in FM96, but left after the 2000 coup and returned three years ago to head Islands Business International, a regional news magazine. She hopes a freer media will mean the return of specialized journalism, which she says has been absent from the Fijian media landscape. I think the other thing that I noticed when I came back was that um, there wasn't the same sort of robustness of discussion and debate and you know, we had some really powerful panel programs, for example, and talk back and all of that sort of thing. I felt like there wasn't a lot of that happening. And I think part of that is a reflection of the, the legislation and its impact on the way people worked. But also, you know, as you know, as a practicing journalist, it's often it was often very difficult to get both sides or three sides or four or five sides of a story because of the way um, newsmakers try to control their messaging and engage with the media. Um, which I thought was really unfortunate. Magic believes that while younger journalists have been smart and unafraid, the difficult working environment which has resulted from the Media Act 2011 has not been conducive to the kind of robust debates necessary for vibrant media. She's excited that change is underway and that less restrictive media laws may encourage journalists to push the boundaries and that mid-career reporters will be more creative and more courageous. And I also hope that it will mean that more people will stay in the profession because, you know, we have this enormous problem with people coming and doing a couple of years and then going for a whole variety of reasons, mainly financial. <laughs> Retired journalism professor Dr. David Roby has taught many Pacific journalists with the heads of at least half of Fiji's newsrooms having been his students. In recent years, he has monitored media development and curated research into the impact the Media Act 2011 has had on journalists. It's uh, controversial, basically, because it's very punitive um, and it's draconian. Uh, I, I, you know, every media freedom organisation globally has condemned it right from right from the beginning. 
Um, but we've, what we've seen is a decline in media freedom in the whole of the Pacific. And I, I put that down largely to, um, you know, how difficult it's been for Fiji. Dr. Roby believes the only way forward is the removal of the Media Act 2011 altogether. I'm a bit sceptical about this notion that, oh, well, you know, we can, we can replace it with some kind of friendly <laughs> legislation. That uh, sounds like a slippery slope to me. It is a very complex um, uh, area, but I would have to say that self-regulation is, is, is pretty well the, the best way to go. Fiji's new Attorney General, Siromi Turanga, will directly work on the changes to the Media Act once the minister responsible for information moves to suggest changes to the restrictive legislation. He wants to reassure Fiji's journalists the government will be truly democratic, but also makes it clear it is early days in the quest to ensure that journalists can work without fear of being charged with a crime. I'm saddened. When I hear about these incidents, it should never happen. It's a sad state of affairs that should never happen. It has happened. We must learn from it and move forward. I'm going to reassure you that the coalition government is going to provide a different approach, a true democratic way of dealing with your freedom. We're not going to touch, no, we're going to direct the military or the police. Turanga confirmed the Fijian Media Association has asked for changes to the Media Act, specifically for the removal of the offences from the legislation which are attached to heavy penalties. A true democracy is where its citizens can, without fear and favour, say whatever they want, opinion, as long as it does not violate those aspects where it's about national security and other matters. Eh? It's important that we can partake in that uh, platform. That was Fiji's Attorney General Siromi Turanga ending that report from Lide Mavono in Suva. And we have contacted Frank Bainimarama's Fiji First Party to ask for a response to some of those allegations of violence against journalists outlined in that story. We are still awaiting a response. And let's stay in Fiji now, where the Rambuka government continues to make sweeping changes to the country's top leadership posts. Fiji's police commissioner, Sitiveni Ingilio, and commissioner of Fiji's correction services, Francis Keane, have been suspended pending an investigation by a special tribunal. Both men have strong ties to former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and have allegations of bullying, abuse and other things hanging over their careers. In the case of Mr. Keane, he was convicted of manslaughter in 2007 before being appointed to head Fiji's prisons. To discuss the changes, I'm joined now by the head of Fiji's Women's Crisis Centre, Shamima Ali. Good morning to you, Shamima. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, can you tell us, what is the significance, particularly of these two suspensions, to the people of Fiji? It means a lot to people, particularly people who have been victimized by having two military heads, you know, uh, running the corrections and the, and, the, and the police force. So, yeah, so it does. And, uh, you know, while the tribunal will decide uh, eventually, what the what what will happen to them? Uh, you know, uh, we actually welcome the fact that the uh, we have been very concerned about the rapid militarization of our civil service and other institutions. And uh, you know, it is a relief to know that uh, the you know the the people who represent the military, who are heading these institutions, uh, have been you know will be 
investigated for the many, many allegations, some of them that you have already mentioned, been made against them. Mm. Uh, I mean, let's look in more detail at some of those allegations. Uh, let's start first with the, I guess, former, now that he's being investigated, Corrections uh, Service Commissioner Francis Keane. He was charged with, with killing a man at the wedding of former PM uh, Brian Marama's daughter, I believe. He was sentenced to 18 months in jail but served just a week. Now, you've been an outspoken, outspoken critic of Mr. Keen Shamima. Why do you, um, oh, can you outline more some of your criticisms and, and what you make of his suspension now, what you hope will come of it? Well, one welcome change is that it's got a new acting head and it's a woman. So we're hoping more, you know, more humanity within that organization. But our main, well, of course, we could not speak out about the sentencing, about him getting away early and things like that. But what really affected us and we we're very concerned about was the fact that he was allowing uh, convicted rapists who ha- who hadn't um, uh, you know, serve their minimum terms to play in national uh, sevens rugby and other rugby in Fiji. And despite uh, our calling out, calling him out, calling the institution out, writing to the um, FRU, the Fiji Rugby Union, in which he also played a very important role, as did uh, Mr. Mbeni Marama, uh, you know, we everything, you know, it turned on deaf ears and we were never listened to. And these guys, uh, particularly one, uh, the Singatoka player, uh, Nasila Sila, because we were so involved in that case and bringing him to justice and so on, that, uh, you know, that's the one that we noticed and we found out there were many more. So despite all of that, no one listened. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's mm. where we are. And of course, you know, we work with uh, with uh, with uh, rape survivors and, you know, and so on and domestic violence survivors. And uh, we also were concerned about what was going on with the convicted rapists inside. We had a good program prior to this regime coming into force. Uh, we were involved with, uh, you know, re-educating the minds of convicted uh, sex offenders and so on. And we're getting some kind of traction at one particular prison, and then we were all stopped from going inside and so on. Um, we also had complaints from uh, from prisoners, uh, 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 inmates, uh, um, uh, relatives and so on about the treatment that was meted out there, ranging from beatings to uh, rape and so on. With impunity, these things were carried out, allegedly carried out, mm. uh, as far as we know. And so, you know, uh, organizations, of course, our Human Rights Commission was a toothless tiger all these years Uh, and uh, then we also had other entities human rights entities international human rights entities that could not gain access into the prison service to review the conditions of prisoners and so on and for many many years people complained you know behind closed doors but no one uh, because of the atmosphere of fear within you know the 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 within our country the last 16 years people would not voice their concerns openly and now that Mr. Keane is out of that um, commissioner position for the moment, at least he's been suspended. Do you hope some um, further investigations into those correctional services into the prisons will will happen? Yes, definitely, definitely. I believe it should happen. It should be how you know what the, what is permitted, what is allowed by human uh, by human rights entities and so on. Particularly the commission, which are, which needs. A redoing itself uh, and, uh, you know, a remake. And yeah, so definitely that. And we're hoping that uh, that career officers will be appointed to positions of authority within the institution. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, now let's shift our focus to the other suspension of, of the um, police commissioner, Sitiveni Angilio. Uh, do you have similar concerns, Shamima, about uh, his uh, career? Yes, look, we have worked with the police for over three decades, the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, because they are one of our main stakeholders in responding to violence against women, girls and children. So we have had that relationship with the police for years. And uh, and we used to be very involved in looking at the curriculum on uh, gender violence against women and girls and human rights with them over the years, you know, training of recruits uh, at recruit level, then at uh, officer qualifying level and so on. Uh, you know, there is always a love-hate relationship between police and people like us, but we did have a very good working relationship. And uh, it did continue with Mr. Ngiliho, and I used to meet with him uh, uh, regularly. But you see, it, it didn't start with him. It started with the first change, and that was, again, a naval commander, Teleni. He became the commissioner of police. Then we had the Jesus strategy that that was going to, you know, you take Jesus into your heart and all the crimes will stop kind of, you know, thing. Um, and then we had after him, Mr. Neva Lurua, another military officer commander who came in. So gradually the police force be, began to be militarized. And what we found was we could not go in and do training. So if if an entity, if an UN entity intervened and asked us to go in and you know train, then we would go in. But uh, all uh, you know, we were stopped from going into the academy. Only with UN entities we could go in if they invited us in. But otherwise not. So you know, it has been gradually militarized. And what we look, we saw was, and and police officers, you know, these officers do talk to us. Those who are traumatized, there was a whole atmosphere of fear, uh, of fear in both these institutions from the officers. They're very guarded about what they said, and they could not, we could not discuss things openly. And uh, it was more, I always call it, more brawn than brain training. That is what happened. It was more concentrating on physical than actual policing. So we've had lots of issues around police, how police respond to uh, the crimes of violence against women and so on. And uh, though we, uh, for the last uh, five months or so, uh, our reg- my regular meetings with the commissioner uh, have stopped. Uh, and, you know, the meetings were pretty cordial and he seemed quite committed and so on, but nothing happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen, uh, you know, senior positions being taken, o- taken over by military officers and good uh, career uh, police officers that we've worked on for years with the 55-year retirement age also, we lost a lot of good officers. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat on your Monday morning, we're speaking with Shamima Ali, the head of Fiji's Women's Crisis Centre. And we're particularly talking about those very high-profile suspensions made recently by the new Rambuka government, uh, in particular the suspension of Fiji's police commissioner, Sitiveni Ingilio, and the commissioner of Fiji's Corrections Service, Francis Keane. Now, we understand, uh, Shamima, that uh, this is all pending an investigation by a special tribunal. Uh, do you believe that they might... Uh, return to their positions? Well, it all depends. You know, um, the, the present government, the new government, is very keen on ensuring justice is for all. And, uh, you know, you, I heard you said uh, someone, one of you saying, the, you said the sweeping changes. Mm. I think these are necessary changes that need to be made, uh, you know, that need that they need to be made. But they are going, you know, like they're following the legal processes. So, you know, uh, who knows? They might come back in. I hope. I hope not. I hope that career officers are, you know, taking that place because let's not also forget the arbitrary arrests within the police force. 
people taken in, you know, for things that could be settled out of court and things like that, and the manner in which people were, uh, you know, taken in, you know, and, and so on. It does not happen in a democracy. So for me, I would much rather the military stays in its lane, and I'd much rather see career officers, uh, you know, taking over these two institutions. And speaking of that, as you as you mentioned, uh, uh, Shamima, it, it has been a woman, and I understand a, a career, yes. um, you know, for someone who's been in the in the department for a long time, who's been appointed as the new acting uh, commissioner of Fiji's Corrections Service. Her name is Miss mm-hmm. Salote Panapasa. How significant uh, mm-hmm. is that appointment to you? It is very, very significant, and it's just it's it's really, really good, and uh, it's a very deserving appointment, and uh, you know, and uh, I really congratulate this government for doing that. Uh, you know, we've got a woman who has been there for a very long time, and I don't believe that would have happened otherwise uh, with anyone else. And we also have in the elections office a woman who's taken over the acting position for the supervisor of elections. So you know, good things. And we'll encourage the government to continue in this way. And, you know, I always say that women bring in a humanity, most women do, uh, into, into you know, places like this. And uh, hopefully, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we can support her to be able to do her job better. And, you know, it's an acting position. And, uh, you know, uh, who knows, she might retain that position. Mm, yes, we, we need to see. Now, I, I know you um, sort of took me or, or made a point about the, the um, term I used earlier, sweeping changes um, by the Rambuka government there, Shimima. But but they have made a lot of um, uh, changes. You know, we're just mentioning a few of the leadership uh, changes, but there have yes, been others. Yes, yeah. um, and this yeah. is only just what a bit over a month since they've come into power. What, what do you make of accusations that they're mu- moving too fast and particularly going after their political opponents? They're not opponents. They were people, a lot of these people, uh, from what we can see, were appointed because they were, you know, allies and, uh, of, the, of the last regime and so on. And those appointments, we don't believe from what we saw and how people were appointed overnight, that they were very fair. I think it's to wrong you know wrong uh, right the wrongs that have been done but it's not about taking revenge or anything it's about removing people who are ineffectual who are doing harm to an institution that's how i see it and i think some of these things need to be done you know for example they're working on the media uh, media act i was about to say decree because that's how we have been ruled over the last 16 years Mm -hmm. the media act and so on you know so those things need to be done i believe um uh, they, I, I believe also that uh, the the present government needs to, uh, it, and it has made a promise. The Prime Minister Rambuka has has made the promise that everything will be done and will for you know follow due process. All the legal uh, pathways will be followed, and as long as they keep on that, I believe uh, you know we are on a good thing. And if they don't. You know, the public is there to hold them accountable also because we do not want the mistakes of the last 16 years repeated. Shimima Ali, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. And that was Shimima Ali, the head of Fiji's Women's Crisis Centre, speaking there.
You're listening to Pacific Beat on your Monday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Hope you're having a lovely start to the week. A community group in Australia's state of Victoria has a new program helping them get licensed to drive. Point of Difference runs the workshops helping seasonal farm workers finish their learners' tests and go on the road safely. ABC's Rosa Ritchie spoke with Nico Ifopo, a public health liaison officer running the program, who explained how it works and why it matters. It helps the seasonal workers understand the the road rules and it's big it's big for them because they're learning about the safety and well being of other drivers as well as themselves. So one of the barriers is that they don't know these rules. So we're with this initiative they're learning as we go. How long does it take the course? So on the website, when you do the the full course, it says that it gives you four hours. It will take about four hours to complete. With our our workshop, it's taking more than double that time because the seasonal workers' English isn't as strong as the average Australian. So it's taking them a lot longer to taking their time to read the questions properly, and if they don't understand, we explain to them what the meaning of those words are, so it's taking them a little bit longer. And how does a typical session get started? You know, we're, we're here in um, your studio. I can see some iPads and, you know, I suppose to make people feel comfortable at first, run me through how you run the whole the day. So basically, they'll come in after a full day's work. So they'll be on the farm roughly from about 6 a.m. to about 3 or 4 in the afternoon, and then they'll it's their choice to come, so they choose to come here after a long day and that shows how eager they are to get their license. So they'll come to the studio and then once they get here, we'll introduce ourselves, tell them how this is going to go. We're going to set up laptops, help them log in, and then we're going to start the, the program and they're just going to read through everything and then do the test as they go. Are there certain parts of you know the course or the process or the rules, certain questions that come up often or you know things that surprise the people participating? Yep, so there's a lot of questions that will come up where it's not the same. The road rules aren't the same as where they've come from. So they'll be surprised that some of the rules are a lot different here than they're used to back in their home country. What's the mood once the program's over? How are people feeling? What do they say to you? From my point of view, it's excitement. They're happy that they've passed. They've put in the hard work of going through the hours of the course. And then once they're finished, it's just excitement. Why is it important that seasonal workers who are here living in the Goulburn Valley can, can drive the car, can get around? Holding these licences and going through the course will they'll be able to see like, it's where it's safe, like with their safety, safety of other road users. And they need this because there's no other way for them to get to work. So they need to get to work to, um, to comply with their visa conditions. And in order to do that, driving is a big necessity. And maybe to have some freedom to, yeah. you know, see the Golden Valley and just a bit more agency, yeah. go and buy groceries maybe, things like that, that would be quite hard otherwise. Yeah, it makes them a part of the community as well because they're, like, they're going to do groceries and they're going around and seeing the town. 
That was a public health liaison officer, Nico Ifopo, speaking there to ABC's Rosa Ritchie. It's time to what's to well to find out what's making news. I'm so excited I can't even spit out my words. Um, what's making news around the region? And as always, to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Pranka. How was your weekend? Not bad. I caught up with some friends. I um, enjoyed the sunshine at the beach with my family. Yeah, pretty good. How was yours? Yeah, similar actually. Did see some family. Went to a, went to a beach as well. First oh. time I've probably swam in a surf beach for about uh, for about four years, which was which was great. And but, you're still um, with us, so that's a good sign. I know. I feel like I need a holiday for my holiday now. <laughs> well, and speaking of um, of the weekend, it wasn't so nice for people in Auckland. There was those really catastrophic floods. I saw pictures of the airport flooding. Mm. And, and really horrible things. And, and unfortunately, the death toll has also risen as a result of those floods. Can you tell us the latest? Yeah, that's right. So the death toll has now risen to four after a person uh, who had been missing uh, was confirmed deceased. Uh, and this comes after, yeah, like you said, that heavy rainfall continued to batter New Zealand's North Island, causing landslides uh, and flash flooding. So the latest, I rep- uh, the latest report I read uh, was carried out by The Guardian, and uh, they said the city remained under a state of emergency up until yesterday. Today and uh, and more severe weather had been forecast for the North Island today. Mm, yes, it must be um, pretty sad news, particularly for people. I can imagine who are, who perhaps went into out, out into the islands uh, over their break, perhaps mm. slowly coming in, and then to have the airport and and all sorts of other things um, flooded there in Auckland must have been really really grave. Um, now has. You know, when we have these floodings, these natural disasters, climate change is always on our minds. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not the case for all natural disasters that that's what's behind it. But how about for these floods? Do we know if climate yeah. change is to do? Well, it has been it has been mentioned. So New Zealand's climate change minister uh, James Shaw, who yeah, I mm. guess is probably the most qualified to talk <laughs> to talk about Indeed. it, uh, did note the link uh, on Saturday. Uh, meanwhile, the Fiji Times has reported that uh, the new Pacific Islander deputy PM uh, Carmel Sapoloni has really made her presence felt as well, helping a number of uh, uh, local PI communities from the diaspora uh, throughout uh, Auckland there. And uh, the news as of yesterday as well is that international flights have resumed uh, to and from Fiji. Oh, okay. Well, that's good news. Quick climate cleanup, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes, and uh, hopefully things continue to clean up there. Um, and now let's head to Guam, where the US Marine Corps has opened its first new base in more than 70 years. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so we heard a little bit about this uh, last week. So a ceremony was held uh, late last week to officially activate uh, Camp Blas, um, which will ultimately be home to 5,000 new soldiers on the island. So this is reported by a number of outlets across the region. It was a pretty big ceremony from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long time coming too. It was a huge project, an $8 million base all up. So you can oh, imagine what, what Did kind of... billion? Did you say million or billion? Billion, yeah. Oh, you can imagine yeah. what kind of infrastructure that... Uh, that that looks like yeah. um, uh, Japan alone contributed about three billion because uh, that's where many of the Marines are going to come from uh, wow. from from o- the the one station in Okinawa there and uh, the construction was actually halted back in uh, 2019 after an archaeologist owned some um, some prehistoric artifacts so uh, that stopped it for a little while there and it was obviously further slowed a little bit uh, by the pandemic. But uh, now officially open now. Yes, there has been some controversy, not only around those archaeological fl- finds, which um, some some local protesters said that should mean that the base doesn't get put on that site, which 
could could have more burials, um, but also around the environmental impacts. I, mm. I read somewhere that a ridiculous amount, I, I could be wrong, but around 40%, a lot of Guam's um, land is actually owned by the US military. And you were right, as we were talking last year, last week about the war games, suggesting that Guam could be in the center of a potential mm. conflict between China and US. There is a lot of controversy and, and concern around these bases. But well, do we know exactly what this base could be used for? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's based around a lot of the language uh, we've heard uh, within the last twelve months. So it, it's going to serve ultimately as a, a strategic hub for the region, uh, a marshalling ground for things like exercises, a, a place to mobilise troops, and things like that. Uh, and that obviously follows the you know those wider, broader plans to strengthen uh, the the US forces uh, within the Pacific uh, amid those heightening tensions with China. Yeah, it is. It is this scary time where we do start thinking about conflicts, and obviously, folks in in U.S. think tanks are thinking about that conflict between China and, and U.S. Mm. and what that means for the Pacific. I wonder if people in Guam feel feel more solace to have this base here, or or, or a bit more more worried about it. Um, yeah, would would love to hear if you're listening to us from Guam. <laughs> do get in touch to ABC Pacific. Um, would love to hear your thoughts, and and if you think that eight billion dollars could have been otherwise spent in your country. Well, there's well, a lot you could do territory. with $8 billion. Indeed, yes, uh, not just bases. Um, now let's head to Cook Islands, where businesses are calling for the country to switch to a New Zealand time zone. Why is that? Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting one, uh, this They're one. They're far away from New Zealand. From what <laughs> <Yeah. I'm laughs> so uh, a prominent businessman uh, has called for the Cook Islands to uh, to share the same date with New Zealand, basically to make things easier from a business and, uh, and travel standpoint. So uh, this is reported by RNZ and at the moment uh, the Cook Islands time zone is almost a whole day behind New Zealand uh, meaning they only share about three business days uh, a week sort of with the bigger centre. So it means uh, when it comes to travellers dates often get confused, Uh, accommodation tends to be booked for the wrong Uh. days, it does create a bit of confusion on that front. So uh, January 1st 2024 uh, is a date that's been uh, tossed up as a proposed day to uh, change the date. And, uh, and if they were to do so, it uh, wouldn't be the first Pacific country uh, with Samoa doing the same thing back in uh, 2011 to align its state with New Zealand and Australia. Oh, yes, I remember hearing about that and the very strange uh, experience of having, I guess, the same day lived, mm. lived twice, I believe, is, is what happened, if, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. I guess the Pacific is, is that very unique region, mm. crosses, um, yeah, crosses the dateline. So um, yeah, as reporters ourselves, we, we always have to check check online to figure out time zones and all that um, would make our lives easier. That's but. right, particularly in Samoa and American Samoa. You That's know, so right. close together but a day apart and yeah, yeah fascinating. Very, very, very strange. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for the stories. Thank you, Pranka. Tune in to SBS Samoan News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoan News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoan News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. 
You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. I wish I could tune into that news, but unfortunately it's 3 a.m. where I live, so it's a bit too early for me to learn some Samoan, but it is on my, on my list of things to do. Um, you are listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Uh, but we do have some benefits being here in Melbourne because the Australian Open just wrapped up here. And as Arina Sabalenka claimed her first major title, Pacific women also participated in a tennis first. An inaugural leadership program with Tennis Australia aims to increase the number of Pacific women in tennis through professional development and networking opportunities. Women from eight countries took part in the program over the last few months. As Dubrovka Volodair reports, they were in Melbourne for the far past few days to graduate from the program and watch some tennis, of course. Tennis is a wonderful sport. Barbara Stubbings is the president of Tennis PNG, who took part in the program. It can be as social as you want, as competitive as you want. Uh, it's a sport that takes you from you know, early childhood right through till the 90s, if you want to. She's been working on how to get more women and girls into the sport over the past few months. Our specific project was increasing female coach numbers and retaining those women coaches within the country and around the Pacific region also. Barbara says they only have two senior female coaches and a few more that are being trained up in PNG. But the Pacific region needs more level one coaches and she's now eager to take her new skills to the community. My confidence has grown through the formalization of that learning it's given me the confidence to now take this back to the community to share these learnings and then to help empower the women in my community and in our sport. Davina Osking-Ashford started playing tennis at a young age. She's now the president of Tennis Cook Islands and says the leadership course boosted her confidence. In previous years, we've had a very strong uh, male leadership. And so, therefore, as a woman, it's quite a it's quite a barrier sometimes. But courses such as the course we've just completed definitely opens our eyes to what's out there, what's possible for women everywhere in this world. Her takeaway is to work on the vision of her club. What is the path we'd like for your juniors, for your seniors, for your social members, and just tennis in general. They're part of a group of eight Pacific women who were in Australia to graduate from the leadership program aimed at getting more women into the sport as players, coaches and as administrators. Vicky Reed, the Director of Government Relations at Tennis Australia, says it's the first time they've offered such a program to Pacific clubs. This has been a program that uh, we're co-creating with the, the women in the Pacific to ensure that it hits the right mark and it's as easy as possible to be delivered and it also really embraces um, confidence building within these courses. She says while many tennis clubs now have women in their ranks, they want to ensure it stays that way for future generations. We don't have that pipeline of leadership coming through. So this program that we have started and wrote in collaboration with um, the, the ladies of the Pacific is really about supporting the next generation of leaders to come through and using these amazing women 
to, to be the role models and the mentors of those women. And with the Australian Open on this weekend, the women had one thing on their mind. Tennis and lots of food. That was Divina Osking Ashford ending that report by Dubrovka Volodair. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. Now, they might not be the most popular creatures on the planet, but nevertheless, as Nick Grimm reports, scientists from James Cook University in Queensland are warning that many species of shark are at risk of extinction. It's a summer national pastime, finding some waves, getting wet and worrying about sharks. I guess because you can't see them. I don't know. I guess that's always that fear. I know if I see a shark, I cannot run away, but uh, still, <laughs> I, I don't feel <laughs> safe. Scary. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, they're just going to come at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're a bit scary. Why are they scary? Um, because they eat people. I wouldn't like to meet one, though, in a dark alley. Thank <laughs> you, man. something going to take my foot off here. Yeah. That's what's on your mind, but I'm always looking. That's why I always try to swim in clear waters so you can sort of see if there's, if there's any signs of sharks around. But it's not just beachgoers fretting about sharks and other creatures of the deep. Scientists and conservationists are also worried, just for very different reasons. Oh, absolutely. You know, we have some seri- fairly serious concerns about the future of these species if we don't do something in a global sense, to, to address those concerns. Adjunct Professor Colin Simfendorfer from James Cook University has just published research revealing the majority of coral reef sharks and ray species are at risk of extinction. Hammerheads, grey reef sharks and blue-spotted stingrays are some under the most pressure. So essentially what we've done is we've looked at, you know, what's the likelihood that sharks and ray species that occur on coral reefs globally uh, will be going extinct in the next like 10 to 50 type of years, that sort of time frame. Um, and the, the, the really uh, alarming result that came back was that um, there are about just under 60% of the species that, that of sharks and ray that live on coral reefs uh, have a, an elevated risk of extinction. We need to go out and do, a, do more work to understand what's the best solution in some of these places, but we know the bottom line is that we need to, to reduce fishing pressure. So we're eating some of these species into extinction? In some parts of the world, absolutely. These are species that, you know, we see in markets in in many parts of the world on a very regular basis. Being in the water every single day, uh, ocean conservationists and photographers like myself all across the planet have have seen this going on for for a long time now. Tom Cannon is an underwater photographer and filmmaker. His footage of whale sharks feeding on WA's Ningaloo Reef has been used by marine scientists to better understand the animal's behaviour. Sharks are a keystone species uh, in marine ecosystems and particularly in coral reef environments as well. A healthy coral reef presents a healthy population of sharks uh, and this is because sharks regulate the predatory fish species on coral reefs. Uh, We need those other herbivorous species of fish to maintain coral reefs, remove algae from reefs, and when there's too many predatory fish that are eating those, sharks basically control those predatory fish and stop them from overpopulating those reefs, and we keep our reefs healthy. The message he hopes gets through to more beachgoers like these. I'm all right with them, I think. They don't really scare me too much. Yeah, same. I don't really get 
and don't really think about them. And the movies make them seem really bad, but they're not. They're just, if we leave them alone, they'll leave us alone. Yeah, I mean, I get that the sharks are, like, they're endangered and we have to look after them as well. But, um, yeah, I'm also scared of them at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that report compiled, compiled by Nick Grimm. And that just about brings us to the end of this Monday morning show of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at same time tomorrow, but do stick around on ABC Radio Australia because news is next.